You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews from experts around the world on the latest and most interesting trends and information on human rights and international humanitarian law. My name is Russell Garner, and we are broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. Today we are speaking to Sam Fraser, a recently graduated master's student of Lund University's International Development and Management Program and recipient of the 2020 Martin Alexander Scholarship. We will be discussing his research titled, We Have Nowhere Else to Go, a study of urban informality within Roma settlement in Arad, Romania. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome, Sam, to RWI. I'd like to just start by asking you to give an overview of your study. Yeah, sure. So I conducted a study in Romania in an informal settlement on the edge of a Romanian city, uh, Arad, and it's an informal Roma settlement. And it's representative of many similar settlements across, uh, found throughout Romania. And I suppose my study was predominantly about firstly finding out what factors had um, brought people to living in that settlement. Like what, why was the settlement established? How has it come to be there? What sustains it? So what keeps people there? What motivates people to remain or to leave? And I think I wanted to establish that in order to position I guess my own study within existing work within Romania, which I thought was important to kind of anchor it somewhere. And then beyond that, I wanted to look at the, I guess, power relations between different actors um, within the city. So people living within the settlement in the municipality and local nonprofit actors working in the area to see, yeah, how, how these different entities interacted and how they exerted power over one another and also how people within the settlement resisted that. All right. So what sort of in your background or interest brought you to studying just this? Like why Roma in Romania? Before moving to Sweden, where I've lived for the past five years, then I spent four years living and working in Romania. And I'd been interested in... Roma communities or Roma issues within the country for a long time before that, so since I was about 17. And living and working there for for a long time and often in communities dealing with similar issues or similar challenges, then I think that was my kind of underlying motivation. And within that, I suppose, once I began my studies and I had these other ideas and other issues kind of introduced to my thinking, then I think that helped develop you know, an interest in urban development. And I thought urban development within the former um, Soviet sphere of influence was quite interesting. And Romania, perhaps even more so, um, it had quite a unique experience under communism. And I think that then the historical factors that have affected and continue to affect Roma communities throughout Romania, combined with that kind of quite unique urban development, meant that I thought Romania was an interesting place with a, you know, quite a prevalent specific issue that was worth studying. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's very, very interesting. Can you sort of give us an overview of your findings? What, why, why did people choose to stay or, or leave this community? Some research had been carried out by um, other actors and they had found or they had identified, I think it was four or, or five periods of history since the Second World War concluded um, in which settlements like this had either developed or emerged. And so a lot of settlements were either kind of residual pockets of people living and they were kind of left over 
or they were left living in places after feudalism and the Romans' emancipation from slavery in Romania, but they had kind of remained where they were, where they'd been working land on behalf of somebody else. And then under communism, some settlements had been settled and developed as the state kind of... I mean, there was a lot of demographic shock, I guess, and a lot of displacement of people under communism and where it was able to achieve its aims, then that often meant that people, in some cases... Yeah, chose to live somewhere else on the outskirts of the city, but the seemingly the party was had other things kind of going on, I guess, for want of a better phrasing. And then the settlements developed. Then after the fall of the regime, then there was what was kind of referred to as the legislative gap. And so then the state almost receded in its capacity to manage its own urban plan. And that led to a lot of people um, settling in these kind of areas. And I found that in this particular area, that was the time in which the area had been settled. So people had moved there because there was a small brick making industry, which was something, at least in certain parts in Romania, Roma were known for, was for brick making. And they settled there on the edge of the river, partly because there was work, partly because they felt like, okay, people leave us alone if we're here. And then it seemed to have remained quite small until the late 90s, early 2000s at which point the size of it exploded. So now it's about 400 people on the outskirts of the city. And mainly the reasons were people were either expelled either forcefully or by virtue of like a, I guess, culmination of circumstances, pushing them out of where they did have housing or formal housing, um, usually either eviction or um, they can no longer afford the cost of living. And people were drawn to this area because it was where other people in like circumstances were living. And I think and then a mixture of kind of familial ties and kind of fraternal ties as well brought people to the to the area. But yeah, those were kind of the main factors establishing it. So the informal settlement itself is both a combination of opportunity in the beginning Mm. with brick making and then later sort of becomes a site of social dumping where where folks who no longer could afford to live within the city proper were then pushed out by authorities is that the way you would characterize it or i'm just trying to make sure i understand i wouldn't characterize it as explicit as the authorities forced people out okay um i think it it seemed much more subtle um which was partly why i wanted to investigate kind of the broad historical issues within romania and I guess in that subtlety, there was a lot of kind of... Because Romania privatized most of its housing stock after the fall of the regime. And so now it has the highest home ownership rate in the whole of Europe, but some of the lowest counts of housing stock and the quality of that housing stock. So a lot of private landlords and private entities control housing if it's not owned by an individual living in the house. And I think this kind of meant that the state doesn't really have much control over housing stock in the city. And so then kind of wider factors that led or contributed to people not being able to afford the cost of living, not being able to find work, which of course draws in factors like the relatively lower rate of education that Roma communities will have and and more subtle kind of prejudices that make it much harder to find work and also make it less likely that someone will want them as tenants. And I mean, some people reported in, in interviewing that they'd just gone away somewhere for a holiday and then come back and somebody else had been moved into their apartment. And they felt like, well, we have nowhere else to go. We can't afford legal representation, so we'll go here. And so it was much more like that. There wasn't this kind of explicit eviction of people. 
often circumstances meant that once people were forced out of wherever they were living, then there was nowhere else for them to go. There was no state support for them in that. But they also couldn't afford to live anywhere else either. Okay. All right. Being that we uh, are in the age of COVID now, mm-hmm. I'm curious, did that affect the conducting of your research? And, and more than just that, how has that affected informal settlements? Mm. It cut short my research period. So in that sense, it had an effect. At the time, it was something that was kind of gaining traction in people's consciousness. People were talking about it. People were aware of it. But it was very much something that was kind of somewhere else. But right up until the moment I left Romania in March time, then then very quickly it had become something that the Romanian government was very proactive about. And that looked like beginning to shut down schools, beginning to lock down areas. And I think, you know, that's partly to do with the state of healthcare across the country, that actually a widespread outbreak of something highly contagious is not something that I mean, it's not something that anyone wants, but particularly in that setting, I think they very much took the approach that actually prevention of this is the best approach. So as I left, then they were consolidating border crossings um, to, I think, three or four major crossings with Hungary, but all smaller crossings have been closed. And as they were doing so, they were building temporary clinics and police stations and the military were reinforcing that, which of course was a very different site after years of... I mean, Romania's a... I think it's a shadow member of Schengen, so it's not a fully fledged or not a fully active partner, but that board has been very open for years. And so this was very much like going back in time. And in terms of how the impact COVID has had within these kind of areas, I suppose, because I left before it really kind of took took hold, then mainly my understanding of that has been anecdotal from contacts I've had back in Romania. But I know it was very hard for people you were only allowed to go outside if you had a piece of paper declaring, you know, for what purpose you were doing so. But if you can't read or write or have access to that kind of administrative material, then you can't go outside. And I think that meant that a lot of those kind of areas became almost further isolated from the city. Okay. So given that a lot of, and correct my characterization if Mm -hmm. if I mischaracterize this, but given that in my understanding that many of the folks, the Roma folks within the informal settlement didn't feel like they had the ability to get support from the government in the first place. Mm. The situation during COVID, even though you weren't there, you presumed to be quite uh, challenging. Challenging, yeah. Okay, so then it seems that we have the same understanding there. What are the sort of broader human rights implications for these informal settlements? Is there any move to make them more formal? Is there any sort of awareness or interest in using human rights as a tool for integration into larger society? Mm. Is there any sort of linkage there? I think in terms of formalization, um, that was one of the, the interesting things that came out of the study was that there's been research done by kind of collections of municipal bodies that gather together in Romania and then the kind of wider Balkan region. And in Romania, it's prohibitively expensive for the state to formalize such a settlement, usually because it forms a legislative issue, because usually there's large fines attached or large penalties attached to people living there on land that they neither have the right to. And then often their livelihoods incur a lot of debt 
And so, yeah, it's formed this kind of legislative issue that to formalize the area would almost be to make it permissible in the eyes of the state. And I suppose it becomes this point of tension whereby, okay, we want to discourage this from happening in the first place because we have this quite widespread issue now to try and and deal with. But at the same time, people need to live somewhere, but then we don't have social housing stock or, or housing stock that's affordable, accessible for people throughout the city. And so then usually responses have been formulated by either people being forcibly evicted which there's now legislation attempting to prevent Um, but usually even a kind of negotiated eviction or relocation I think it could be argued that to some extent it's just a softening of the language but ultimately if you're if you're still physically relocating people because another issue those kind of areas confront is that often they become kind of racialized and stigmatized spaces where even if the majority of the population is or isn't Roma is somewhat irrelevant. It becomes perceived as this is a, um, like one scholar in particular who I discussed in, in kind of the earlier parts of the, of the study, he talks about these kind of parts of cities, not just in Romania, across Europe, becoming kind of gypsy urban areas and that certain things about those areas, it becomes acceptable that they're underfunded, that they're cut off to some extent and I think often solutions are framed in terms of okay but we'll move people here to where we've built this and it's better and of course like it is better in the immediate outlook in that you know there might be infrastructure there might be sewerage there might be those kinds of things but it still doesn't confront the underlying issue and I suppose this was one of my these conclusions was that the and, and it's one of the biggest criticisms that Roma scholars and activists have of legislation at a European and national levels that often it's designed to confront the practical development issues that Roma communities face, but doesn't necessarily attack the kind of racial undertones or the discriminatory undertones. And that often a lot of European legislation attempts to circumnavigate issues of, I guess, in this case, like manifestations of anti ziganism and so then I guess a human rights driven approach is very much, it would still be very much framed in terms of access to things, access to services. But I'm not sure that really interrogates like the fundamental issues. Right, right. So yeah, even if you have access to housing, even if you have access in principle to work and the rest of that, if uh, you have a racialized labor market, then it doesn't matter. Right. Eventually you're back in an informal setting at some point. Mm trying to claim your rights again yeah yeah no, that that makes sense where are you going from here do you plan to do more research on informal settlements or on the roma diaspora i mean physically i'm going to brussels uh my wife and i are relocating there where i hope i'll be able to connect with i know there's different roma advocacy organizations based in the city at the moment i think I have a lot of experience working on the ground, both in Romania and and in Sweden, where I've worked with Roma migrants from Romania who predominantly live on the street in Malmö. I know there's a similar community in Brussels. I guess I, I suppose I would like to connect with them. And yeah, I, I suppose I'm interested in, you know, how policy is developed at that level. And yeah, how at a kind of European level do people really envisage affecting real change and I guess sub- substantive emancipation for Europe's Roma citizens because I think there's a lot of dissonances between what we say and what's written and then what is lived and what is practiced and I think I mean I think there's a lot of complicated issues that the European Union faces but one of them is that there is a large diasporic population who share 
some common identity, but not always the same common identity, because I think Roma aren't a homogenous group of people. And I think they're often spoken about or treated as if they are in a lot of legislation or ideas people writing or talking about Roma often treat them as homogenous. I mean, it's something I had to constantly try and confront in my own work. Like, is, is this what I'm doing? And I think, you know, there, there probably will be cases and times where I, you know, I still do. I think it's this constant unpicking of your own thinking. So I suppose I'd like to connect with actually understanding how it is that people think and the work that people do at that level, you know, developing policy and advocating at, at that kind of level. Because I think, I think also from my own experience on the ground, there's often a large disconnect between the two worlds and they're often frustrated by one another. Is there any like sort of one or, or maybe a few things that through your research you'd like to highlight about the situation for Roma and informal settlements? Like you had went into earlier about the racialization that just claiming your rights mm. won't necessarily sort of further your cause or integration mm. uh, is there anything else sort of like like that that uh, you can sort of draw forth from your research that you think a general audience should know i don't know if this answers your question but i know that from my own experience from both working with roma in malmo who are living in i guess what you could categorize or classes or, or talk about as kind of informal conditions and then arad that's I think there's often some kind of perception that there's a trick or that people are benefiting from this in some way, that there's some kind of underlying, which I think is part of this kind of suspicion of Roma that I think pervades European societies. And I think people struggle to engage with the normalcy of people living in those places and on the street, partly because it helps your conscience to rest. If you think that there's something abnormal about these people, then in some way, you know, if you can't imagine them as yourself or your son or your daughter, then in some way it's easier to reconcile. But I, I think one of the biggest things that came out of the interviews when we were talking with people about, you know, what would your resolutions be for, you know, this situation that we've been talking about now? And I think what struck me was that people were very tired of being subject to projects and, you know, people's ideas and that they weren't they weren't their ideas. Their ideas were about only go renting a house or an apartment, like a very normal, quote unquote, for want of a better word, life. And there wasn't this desire to be kind of perpetually subject to projects because they are Roma and because they're a special case. And and I think that's important for people to engage with, I guess, that there isn't a trick. There isn't something going on. This is very... And that when when, when we find ourselves thinking that maybe there is, then I, I think it's more important to interrogate, well, where's that coming from? Like, what motivates me there? Because at least the people I met, of, of course, like, you know, but people are people everywhere. You know, I'm sure in my apartment building, there's some people doing things that would raise my eyebrows. But, you know, I met a lot of people and, and meet a lot of people daily who are just trying to do the best by themselves and their families like anybody else. And that, that I think that normalcy to really engage with that makes is uncomfortable because then it's it's like okay but what's the line between me and them then really and at that point i think it's where you're like okay there's some issues here that we should be having a more open conversation about as societies and i think in in lots of different cases and situations you see around the world now that you know in some cases there seems to be some breaking point in some of that tension and where those conversations aren't being had, then people are forcing people to have those conversations. 
Thank you very much for your time, Sam. That was wonderful. I wish you luck in your continued endeavor. Thank you. That was Sam Fraser, recipient of the 2020 Martin Alexanderson Scholarship and Master of International Development and Management. This has been On Human Rights. For more information and the latest updates from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thank you for listening.